So CJ highlighted some of the ministries of the church, just a few of them, things to look forward to, to celebrate. And we can, in, you know, support these ministries through our prayers, encouraging people that are involved, and of course, giving. When we give, it's an act of worship. We follow the example of Jesus who poured out his life. We follow the example of the early church. Uh, Paul, in writing his second letter to the Corinthians, he highlighted the, the church of Macedonia, and this is what he wrote, uh, verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 8. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. So note the order. They gave themselves to Jesus completely. And then out of that relationship with him, they gave generously in response to his leadership. And so the same should be true for us. When we think about giving, we first of all give ourselves completely to Jesus and then ask, Lord, how would you have us give? We give for his honor, for his glory, for the furtherance of his kingdom. If you want to give this morning, there are uh, purple envelopes in the seat backs in front of you. You can also give online, of course. Giving is an act of worship, and we do it for the glory of our Savior and Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. All of life belongs to you. Everything belongs to you. And so we surrender ourselves to you, Jesus, this morning. And uh, we see a Lord, use us for your glory. We thank you that we can follow you. We thank you that we can serve you. We thank you for the privilege of bringing you glory. It's only by your grace. And so in this moment, we just humble ourselves before you and say, Lord, continue to do your work in us. Transform us into your likeness that your name would be praised here and around the world. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you instruct us by your spirit as we read, as we hear the word preached. We pray your anointing on Pastor Vin this morning. Lord, may your word fall on fertile soil in our hearts. May we receive it and then live by it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, let's open the Scriptures to Luke chapter 16, and I'd ask you to stand with me as I read. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, 
Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Reading of God's Word. Let's be seated. Pastor Ben. Um, good morning, Willingdon Church. Uh, for those who don't know me, uh, my name is Vin. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, let me start off by saying this. So 10 years ago, for those who don't know me, 10 years ago, I moved away from my country of birth, which was Australia, where I was born and raised. And I can still remember that it was a, a warm, toasty day. It was 35 degrees Celsius, to be exact. As an Australian, that's just warm. But before getting on the plane to, to, to fly from Australia to Calgary, I was warned by my wife, Laura, who was born and raised in Calgary. She said, uh, when you get here, it's going to be a little bit cold. <laughs> a little bit cold ended up being minus 32 degrees Celsius, not including wind chill. So when I first felt, when I, you get out of the airport and you feel that cold smack hit your face, I said to Laura, when it's this cold, the fires of hell don't seem so bad. <laughs> Look, there's a, there's, there are things that we say in church and in culture that lack understanding. Like here in Canada, we say things like, you're going to have to excuse me, but we say things like in Canada, what the hell? We say things like, oh, it's like hell on earth here. Or on the opposite end, we say things like, when we look at a couple, we say, oh, you're a match made in heaven. Or for heaven's sake. See, some of us make, they make these statements daily without really knowing what they actually mean. This also applies to the topic we will be wrestling with today, and the topic is what happens after we die. And I'll answer at the top. The Bible tells us that there are only two destinations, heaven or hell. But there have been misconceptions of what these places are. There have been misconceptions and misunderstandings in the church and in society. So I hope to bring us to a, like a clearer understanding of heaven and hell in a very short time. So there are three points I want to make in today's message, and they are this. First, most want hell. Second, few want heaven. And then third, but all will receive justice. Okay? Most want hell, few want heaven, but all will receive justice. So let's begin with my 
Our first point, most want hell. When you revisit the story in Luke chapter uh, 16, verses 19 to 31, there are some interesting points about this story. First, Jesus does not say that this is a parable. The idea of a simple story that illustrates a lesson. He, He actually doesn't say that. But if this is a parable, which I think it is, then it's the only parable in all of Scripture that names a person. And that person happens to be Lazarus. However, the rich man in the entire parable is never named, ever. He's only called the rich man. And when the rich man dies, he's buried. And then we're told in verse 23 that he ends up in Hades or or hell, a place where he's tormented and in anguish. Then in verse 24, the rich man still expects Lazarus to come and serve him. He actually tells Abraham, hey, hey, send Lazarus here, dip his finger in water so I can be sort of cooled down. This indicates that the rich man thinks Lazarus is his, like, servant. And we are told in verse 20, towards the beginning, that the rich man is so rich that he has a gate to protect his property. But Lazarus lies outside the gate, not inside the property. And a big fact about this story is this. Not once in this entire story or parable, not once, does the rich man ever ask to leave hell. We will come back to why these are actually very important, uh, very important points. But C.S. Lewis, Oxford professor in the, in the early 20th century, wrote this as a Christian in his book, The Problem of Pain, when it came to the topic of hell. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. You see, hell seems to be the place that most non-Christians are fascinated with, but also completely repulsed by. Most reject Christianity because of the idea of hell. I once uh, was in a life group, Laura and I were in a life group, where a Christian lady in our life group told everyone in the group that we should all put our hands over a burning stove. And I asked her, okay, why? The lady confidently replied by telling the group that it is a good reminder of what we are being saved from. Look, if this is the biblical view of hell, no wonder it's so hard for Christians to talk about it. So what is hell? Historically speaking, the idea of hell, the place of torment and of punishment, actually pre-exists this modern idea of hell and Christianity. All world religions have some form or concept or idea of like hell, a place of torment. But ultimately, I want to focus on what the Bible tries to reveal to us about hell. So a very quick history lesson. Through the first three centuries of Christianity, hell was simply portrayed as a place of fire where sinners go to be punished and burnt for all of eternity, all of time. 
But in the 14th century, hell got an in-depth look. In the 14th century, the Italian poet Dante wrote what most would consider the most important literary work of the Middle Ages. Dante's famous work is known as the Divine Comedy. It's set in three parts, okay? It's hell, it's chapter one of the first section, then purgatory, and then heaven. But the most famous out of the three is hell. Up on the screen, you're going to see the version, an illustrated version of Dante's Inferno, which is what the hell piece is. Dante explains that as you enter, as you enter hell, there's going to be a sign as you enter in. And the sign as you begin your journey into the depths of hell, the sign says, abandon all hope, you who enter here. What you're going to notice on the screen in Dante's version of hell, there's going to be sort of nine circles, is what he calls them, of hell, but there's like sort of these nine levels. So starting from the very top, he calls that place limbo. Those, this is safe for those who never knew Jesus, but are not sinful enough to be like eternally damned. Then second, you got lust, then gluttony, then greed, then anger. The sixth circle you see there, it's called heresy. And in this circle, Dante meets a priest. So like a pastor like me, I got no chance. Then the seventh, you got violence. But the violence is set into three inner circles within the nine. You're going to notice that when the three rings, the outer ring in violence is for people who are violent towards people and towards property. The middle ring is for those who are violent against themselves, for instance, suicide. And then the inner ring is for those who are violent towards God, so like blasphemy. Eighth, fraud was saved for politicians. <laughs> Astrologers and then false prophets. Nine was treachery. And then finally, you get to the middle, which is what they call the center of hell, where Satan is depicted by Dante as a three-headed beast, eating sinners. But in Dante's Inferno, he says the sinner that, 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 that the devil is eating, this three-headed beast is eating, is Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus. Look, if Dante's version of hell is correct, then the lady who told me and, and told my group to all burn ourselves over a stove, if, uh, if they're correct, then we need to do all we can to avoid hell. Because fear should drive us to avoid it. But we all know fear is not a good motivator. The first major thing we all need to know is this. Hell is not the place where Satan rules. Hell is where Satan is punished. When we go back to the story, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, what we notice in, in verse 24 is that the rich man is in fire, in anguish. But he's not being burnt up. He doesn't disintegrate, and then that's the end of it. The modern understanding of hell suggests that God gives a person time on earth, life, 
But by, by the end of their life, if they haven't accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, then somehow their soul or their spirit sort of falls through space. And they cry out after they die through this space and time, whatever. And they cry to God, save me. And then God replies and says, too late. You had your chance on earth, and now you need to suffer. And the suffering goes on for all eternity. There are two things I want to address here quickly. Is the fire and the topic of punishment for all eternity. See, the Bible commonly uses the image of fire to describe hell. So why fire? In the times of Jesus, there was no other imagery that could best describe the worst of hell. There's no other imagery that people would have understood. So fire was the worst. The idea of fire, if you think about fire, even in today, fire slowly destroys and devastates. Like sin. It slowly destroys and devastates. Am I now saying that there'll be zero physical pain or anguish in hell? No. Even though the Bible does use words of pain, very rarely, but it does, it's actually not the main focus of hell and the driving point of hell. It's not its focus. The Bible passage shows us, and overall scripture shows us that hell is the rich man's freely chosen identity apart from God for eternity. In other words, G.K. Chesterton, a Christian philosopher and apologist, he sums it up best when he says, hell is God's great complement to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. You know, when I first came to the realization as a young Christian and as a young pastor of what hell really was, I thought to myself, actually, hell doesn't seem that bad after all. If that's what you're saying, if there's no, like, barely any torment and whatever, it's not so bad. But the truth is, I, could be, I couldn't be any more wrong. Hell is far worse than what you actually can imagine. Let me put it to us this way. When I first ran away from home, I first ran away from home at the age of 13. And I didn't go back for 10 years. The truth is, I didn't even look back. I didn't even care to go back. Because there was so much out in the world to enjoy and explore. The further away I went from home, the further I went away from my family, even physically, the truth is we all know that the further away emotionally and mentally I moved away. I wanted freedom from them, away from them. I wanted freedom all to myself. But this freedom that I achieved at 13 years old came at a great cost. Complete and utter isolation. To not have the presence of God would be hell. In other words, hell is the absence of God and that will, that will cause not just physical anguish, but worse spiritual, emotional, and mental anguish. But hell for eternity? That seems unfair. 
It seems unfair. You know why? Because we live on this earth for maybe, maybe under 100 years. And then somehow the Bible tells us that we get punished for 100 million years. How is that fair, God? First, it's not about how long it takes to commit a crime, but rather the weight of the crime. Stabbing someone will take you three seconds to kill someone, right? But do you now then deserve a three-second punishment? Of course not! Because the human life that you took by stabbing them has value and worth. Our society would demand, even our non-Christian society would demand a punishment equal or more than what you committed. But the flip side then is for us in, in, in our culture and society and humanity is that, but we're all biased, are we not? We're biased when it comes to sin, crime, punishment. We rank everything by, you know, sort of severity. This is not as bad as the other. And if you and I committed a crime, someone that we love, family, friends, someone very dear to us, if they committed a very severe crime, wouldn't you as a good friend, as a good family member, who has committed this crime, wouldn't you ask for leniency? Please, courts, please, and my friend. But if the enemy, if your enemy committed the exact same crime as the one that you love dearly, you would say, throw the book at them. Lock them up forever. Give them no way out. So even for us, we are corrupt, but God is not. When these crimes are committed, we not only commit them against each other, but we also ultimately commit them against God. See, lying to each other is vastly different than lying to God. God is infinite, holy, perfect in every way imaginable. Our sins against him are infinite. The truth is most of humanity wants freedom. They want freedom away from God. They want freedom just for themselves. They ultimately, we all want to be our own gods. See, when we read back in Luke chapter 16, verse 25, Abraham calls the rich man child. The word here in the Greek, the child, is actually the most loving term between a parent and a child. The point here is that God the Father does not want his children, his people, to go to hell. He doesn't. But as a loving father, he will ultimately give his children what they want. Which leads me to my second point. Though most want hell, few want heaven. So in Luke chapter 16, all of it, 1931, there are small details also I want to take us to take notice of. In verse 22, it tells us that Lazarus was carried to heaven. He's carried, he's lifted up. But the rich man's what? Buried, woke up, and is in torment. Verse 22 also then informs us that Lazarus is carried to Abraham's bosom, his side, which also means heaven, but that he is not, the big point here is that Lazarus is not alone. He's with other believers, with Christian community. That's the point. The rich man, however, is depicted what? 
alone, no one. The entire story, parable, points to the idea that Lazarus is comforted for eternity, but the rich man is in anguish for eternity. Look, but just like hell, heaven has been sort of mistreated and misunderstood. David Lloyd George, former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, sums up what many believe to be heaven. And he says, when I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to frighten me. More than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a place where time will be perpetual Sundays with perpetual services from which there will be no escape. Did you hear what he's saying? He thinks heaven was going to be like a church service that doesn't end. You don't get to leave. Or, in our society today, many believe heaven to be like a cream cheese commercial. (laughs) Where people wear white robes, play on harps, and float on clouds for all eternity. That's all you're going to do. If this is our understanding of heaven, then the truth is that society and Christianity have nothing to look forward to. If that's the best thing you got. A book I highly recommend on the topic of heaven is Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven. It's big, but it's a good book. And he states in his book very clearly, if you can't envision it, you can't look forward to it. Pastor Randy Alcorn strongly believes that when Christians have a better grasp of heaven, it not only helps our tomorrow but it also shapes our today. To expand on this point, C.S. Lewis in his book, Me, Christianity, says, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the safe trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Many Christians have done a disservice to the world because we put all our time, talent, treasure into the life that we have now. We're building our castles, our security, our comfort. Church, they're not wrong within themselves, please hear me, but we have allowed these things to be a distraction and they eventually become our idols. Christians, we treat this life that we have here on earth as the only life we'll ever have and we hold on to it for dear life. But Jesus offers more. And the truth is, the world wants more. It demands more. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 11, I'm going to read the, the most important bit there, and it says that God himself has put eternity into man's heart, into humanity's heart. Scripture is saying God has put this gut-wrenching feeling that we want something more than what we have. Our world is crying out for eternity. It wants it, believe me. Think about it. 
Look, if heaven was white robes and us singing, floating on clouds, playing on a harp, if that's what heaven is, I'm out. I don't want it. Count me out. But think about it more deeply. Think about some of the best moments you've had in life. Think about the best wedding feast, the greatest banquet you've had, when you've invited family and friends to your house, and you've gathered for food, and you've had laughter and enjoyment. Think about those moments. Do you know what you say? Do you know what you say in those moments, in the greatest of all moments? When it's all said and done, you say, where did the time go? I wish this moment would last forever. That's what we say in the greatest of all moments. If that's what heaven is like, I want that. When we make statements of that, where did the time go? I wish it would never end. Time flies when you're having fun. When you make statements like that, you know what it is? They always involve people. Those statements are never made in isolation. Never. But even knowing that, that's still not enough. Heaven would not be enough if that was it. In Exodus chapter 33, verses 15 to 16, it says, and he said, that is Moses speaking to God, and he says, if your presence would not go with me, Do not bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? The context of the story is this, that the story here is that God's people, Israel, they've done a really evil thing. As Moses leaves them and goes up to the mountain, the people of Israel, they they decide they're going to make a golden calf, and they're going to worship this calf. Because Moses is gone and God doesn't seem to be there. God is so angry. He is mad. But God relents from destroying his people. But he tells Moses this. He tells Moses, look, I won't destroy the people. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to send an angel to lead them to the promised land. But I, I won't go with them. And then Moses, he, he begs and he pleads, God, don't, don't, don't leave us. It's because when you go with us and that you're always with us, that's what makes us special. But if you're not there, we're not special anymore. See, some Christians have, have been distracted by the thought of heaven. See, the most recent popular Christian books are books written by people who claim, right or wrong, I don't know, who claim that they have died, gone to heaven, and then come back to earth and then written a book to describe what heaven is like. The books are mostly about heaven. But this can be an unhealthy obsession. You see, the truth is is that heaven is more than a place. Heaven is a person. In John 17, 3, it says, And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. That's heaven. To know God, the only true God, and his son whom was sent. Wherever God the Father is, wherever God the Son, wherever God the Holy Spirit is, that's where heaven is. 
See, the greatest wedding banquet would not be the greatest wedding banquet without the bridegroom. It wouldn't be. Which now leads me to my last and final point, which is, but all will receive justice. For some, the two options of heaven and hell can still seem and really feel unfair. But let's think about it. What's fair or unfair, or better still, the better word is, what is justice? Um, I don't know about you, but I'm guessing some of the men will relate to me here. But I really enjoy action movies. I enjoy most things about action movies, but for most action nuts, the, the, one of the highlights of an action movies is, is you want to see how the bad guy dies. Okay? So the worse the bad guy is, then the death has to be more satisfying in the movie. Because the truth is, if, if, if you build up this story in this action movie and the guy's really, really bad, and then somehow in the movie he just dies from a heart attack, it, it, just, it just feels wrong. You know what I mean? You want him to die, die. See, another point we need to consider here is this. I bring up this because of this reason. Because church, we're Canadians. And in our cultural and social lens, we've been shaped by what? By the West, because this is where we live. Here in the West, we hate the idea of hell or justice, like true justice. But if you were to ask people from different countries and continents, let them tell you a thing or two about hell and divine judgment. My parents escaped a war-torn countries as refugees. They escaped. They don't, they, to this day, they still don't want to talk to me about it. I, I barely know a single thing that, of what they went through when they fled their country because the pain is too much for them. But by other means and through other people who have escaped, where they escaped from, I've heard of stories of torture, murder, and even cannibalism. Or, why don't we ask people from all continents, Africa, Europe, Asia, and then ask people from the Middle East, let them tell you stories of ethnic cleansing and genocides that have occurred, but also still occur today. You know, if, I, if, if you were to ask my parents or the people who have suffered through ethnic cleansing and genocide, if you were to ask them about hell and divine judgment, it doesn't bother them for a second. Believe me, it doesn't bother them. My parents, personally speaking, my parents don't even like Western Christianity because they think it looks weak and soft. Why does the West get to determine what is right and wrong about hell and divine judgment? Are we better than those who have suffered elsewhere? Of course not. Miroslav Volf, a Croatian native who is now a Yale University professor of faith and culture and a very outspoken Christian, says through the lens of the Bosnian War, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis, 
that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Wolf believes that it is the lack of a belief in a God of justice that drives humanity to take justice and vengeance into our own hands. That's what he's saying. Well, Wolf mentions that if, if the God of the Bible does not enact justice on a torch and broken land, then he is not a God of justice and ultimately not worthy of worship. To expand on this, comfortable Christianity can have the very opposite effect. And this is what I mean. Because comfortable Christians believe that they are promised heaven in the afterlife, then for them, then we don't have to worry. Whatever happens here, happens here. Because we get to escape. We get to go to the afterlife. And then for them, they don't have to worry about justice in the here and now. So the comfortable Christian, their attitude is, well, I'm going to be safe in the end, so nothing else really matters. But the truth is, Christians should be all crying out for God's justice to reign across the earth now. Christians should care about God, having God restore and put things in the right order now. Look, you know, here in North America in general, there's been too many shootings, have there not? There's been mass shootings at schools, universities, in public shopping malls. My question is, should we forgive and love the shooters? Should we say things like, hey, don't worry about it, don't judge, don't no one judge. Let's just love and forgive everyone. Everyone gets in. No. Our hearts, our heads, our hands, we not only cry for justice, but we actually demand it. The flip side is, is that the problem is, is that our justice is so, it's so warped and completely out of balance that we kind of entrust ourselves to enact proper justice. Of course we must try, but the God of the Bible is not corrupt not warped, and he gives us exactly what we all deserve. And what do we deserve? We deserve hell. We all deserve to be away from the presence of God for all eternity. That's what we deserve. Um, I don't know about you, but I love Coke Zero. I drink it way too much to the point where now when my kids see me drink it all the time, they always ask me, Daddy, can I have a taste? My honest thought is I don't want to give it to them because I don't want them to get in the bad habit of drinking Coke Zero at a young age. So you know what I do as a good father and a good pastor? I lie to them. <laughs> I'm kidding. But every now and then, I make up some story that it's really bad for you and that the Coke company has put poison into the drink. <laughs> and they always follow up. They always follow up with, but why do you drink it? <laughs> and I tell them, 
I'm old and dying. It doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> Look, lying to my daughters is wrong. But lying to a God that is holy and infinite should have infinite consequences. Let me put it another way for us. Let's say my children go on a play date after school. They go to a, they go to a friend's house. And as they get to the friend's house, the friend says to them, hey, before we start playing, one rule I have for us. As soon as we're done playing, right before you go home, what we need to do is we need to clean up the room, put all the toys back where we took them from. When the time came that I came to the house to, to come pick up my children and my children leave, and now the toys are still left on the floor, and I didn't clean up. I am more than sure that there would be no, no real punishment, right? The friend would go, oh, fine, whatever it is, just go home. I mean, the worst thing that might happen is they might not be invited over again. But if the same situation, this idea of them playing with toys and not cleaning up, the same, same situation happened at my house, in their room, after I had warned them, hey, before you play, rule is you have to clean up once you're done, the punishment will be different, would it not? It will be different because my relationship with my daughters has weight to it. You see, the Bible teaches that we are all made in God's image, beautifully, fearfully, wonderfully made. We bear his image. There's weight to our relationship. We didn't come into existence by chance or luck or by nothing. God made us intricately, you and me. And the God of the Bible is a father that wants to be in relationship with his children. He desperately wants it. But like most children, we want to do our own thing. And as a loving father, he will give us that freedom, even though it breaks him. The Bible simply puts it, the idea of doing our own thing as it calls it sin. The Bible teaches that it is sin that separates us further away from God. The Bible talks about God leaving no sin to go unpunished. Okay, if there is sin, we're going to have to deal with it because it's weight to our relationship. Either he will punish you and me for the sin or for those who put their faith and trust in his son Jesus, just like Lazarus, God gives eternal life. Because justice is achieved and vindicated as Jesus is crushed for our sins. But then he's raised back to life. Rebecca McLaughlin in her wonderful book, Confronting Christianity, says, If Jesus is the bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrifice for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. But church, there's hope. And for those of you who are hearing for the first time, there is hope. Because God has made a way for his children. And that way is Jesus. That's it. Because it is Jesus who not only takes on sin, but very importantly, he becomes sin and takes the punishment for that sin, 
for those who believe in him. So before I pray, I want to leave us with this, this one final thought. All those in hell deserve to be there, but all those in heaven deserve not to be there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are deeply thankful that you are a good and loving God. So loving that you sent your son to die for our sins, to be raised back to life, and lovingly you will come back for us, for those who put their faith and trust in you. And God, and sometimes we can forget that you are so loving that you also allow us, allow your children to do whatever we want knowing that it breaks your heart because knowing that the consequences are so deep and so profound and so hurtful and so painful and cause so much anguish and torment, Lord God. And you allow us. You allow people to say that my will be done, not yours, God, but mine. So Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you draw people to your side? Would you draw people so that they would be away from hell and towards your presence so they will experience heaven for all it's worth, Lord God. So Jesus, make yourself known to those who know you and to those today who do not know you. And so Jesus, we thank you that this can all be achieved for what you did for us on the cross. And in, only in your name do we pray. Amen. Let's stand.